Lewis endorsed simple values that he feared were endangered by a know-it-all state. To live one's own life in his own way, to call his house his castle, to enjoy the fruits of his own labor, to educate his children as his conscience directs, to save for their prosperity after his death. That is what liberty meant for Lewis. This was his vision of the good life on an earthly scale. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. The conventional wisdom on C.S. Lewis was that he really didn't care much for politics or for law, and so he wouldn't have spent much time or energy on liberty either. But the conventional wisdom is mistaken. The truth is Lewis was deeply interested in the political, properly understood, as well as natural law, the human person, and genuine liberty. In this lecture from Acton University 2022, Michael Watson explores Lewis's thoughts on these matters by considering his biography, his keen interest in criminal justice reform, what he believed about the purpose of government, and how his views on natural law and human liberty connect to his Christian convictions. Michael Watson is Associate Professor and PPE Program Director at Calvin University and an Affiliate Scholar at the Acton Institute. He is also the Executive Director of the Paul Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics. His research interests include John Locke and the political thoughts of C.S. Lewis. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. My name is Micah Watson. Uh, It's a great privilege for me to to join you here at Acton University. It's my first time at Acton. Our family moved to Grand Rapids about seven years ago. One big plus for that was how close we would be to the Acton Institute. Um, So I am very glad to be with you here in person. My day job, I work at Calvin University uh, a few miles down the road here in Grand Rapids. I'm also delighted to join you because we are discussing the intersection of C.S. Lewis, liberty and law. And if you are here in this room, and you are by definition, I probably don't have to sell you on why that's a great combination. I hope you'll find our conversation illuminating, whether you're new to Lewis or a longtime admirer. (laughs) Speaking of newcomers to Lewis, we get one nice account of meeting Lewis for the first time from George Sayer, who was a student of Lewis's at Oxford, and one of his earliest biographers. He writes this, as I walked away from new buildings, and Oxford new buildings, by the way, were completed in 1458, the new buildings, I found the man that Lewis had called Tollers sitting on one of the stone steps in front of the arcade. How did you get on, he asked. I think rather well. I think he'll be a most interesting tutor to have. Interesting, yes, he's certainly that, said the man, who I later learned was J.R.R. Tolkien. 
you'll never get to the bottom of him. Well, we're not going to get to the bottom of him either, right here and now. But we will try to make some headway into Lewis's views. I want to address four areas about Lewis, law, and liberty in my opening remarks and for our discussion. First, that contrary to the conventional wisdom, Lewis's personal life was very much intertwined with politics and law. And one event in particular spurred him to write a short essay in which he endorses an almost John Lockean version of a limited government. So the first point we'll talk about is Lewis's personal and indeed biographical interest in political things. Second, we'll talk a little bit about a particular justice issue that Lewis was invested in. He was no policy wonk, to be sure, but he did get a bit into the public policy weeds when it came to the criminal justice system. Lewis cared deeply about law on the human level and its impact on human flourishing and freedom. Third, we move from that specific policy issue to the big political picture. Lewis wrestled with the purpose of government on a macro scale, particularly with his conflicted attitude towards the welfare state. Fourth, we'll move from human-made law to God-authored law with a capital L. Lewis is justly famous for his defense of natural law, or what he refers to as the law of human behavior in mere Christianity, and the Tao, T-A-W, Tao, in the abolition of man. This is the enduring law from which any merely human law gets its legitimacy. He is not so much a natural law theorist as he is a natural law apologist. I'll conclude by suggesting that all of Lewis's musings about politics, law, both civil and natural, and liberty are framed in a teleological or purposeful context. That is, his understanding of liberty with a capital L is directional. It's heading somewhere. We are heading somewhere. And to miss this aspect of Lewis's teaching is to misunderstand everything else we get from him. So claim number one the personal, and the political. The conventional wisdom on Lewis was that he didn't care much for politics or for law and probably would not have spent much time on liberty then either. But the truth is he was surrounded by talk of law and politics from day one. And while we don't have time for the full case today, he remained interested in politics properly understood his entire life. His father, Albert Lewis, was a lawyer and apparently took his work home with him. Lewis's brother, Warney, described their childhood as dominated by a one-sided torrent of grumble and vituperation about Irish politics. Hard to avoid law and politics talk when you grow up in Northern Ireland, as Lewis did. Lewis's life as a young man was also dominated by political matters. As after 1914, all young men his age knew sooner or later they would be drafted to serve in the First World War. And Lewis did serve in the infantry in World War I, fighting in the trenches and indeed getting wounded. Upon his return to Oxford, after being discharged, Lewis wrote to his father about reconvening with his fellow students, many now veterans, in the junior common room of University College in Oxford, 1919. And reading the minutes from the last meeting, made some five years prior with nothing to record in the meantime. 
I don't know of any little thing that has made me realize the absolute suspension and waste of these years more thoroughly, Lewis reflected. All the enlistments and training, the viscera and trauma of the fighting men in the trenches, and the physical and spiritual brokenness resulting from political decisions made by European politicians and their civil servants and military officers. The staggering waste and incomprehensible loss accompanying the Great War cast an immense shadow over the turn of the century generation of Britons. It's no wonder Lewis would then harbor a lifelong distrust of government. So as with most of us, Lewis's political views were intimately connected to his biography. And occasionally, biographical events shed light on Lewis's political views. I want to focus on one particular event from Lewis's personal life that gives us an interesting insight into his view of law and liberty. Lewis married Joy Davidman Gresham in 1956, first in a civil ceremony, and then in a real Anglican service in December of that year as Joy's death appeared imminent. She did recover, which Lewis took to be miraculous, and they lived together for four more short but happy years until cancer took her at the age of 43 in July of 1960. What you may not know about Joy Lewis was that she was a divorcee, a former communist, a trenchant and rather salty literary critic, and an American. Uh, if you do watch the Shadowlands movie, Deborah, Wing her, Deborah Winger presents her, portrays her very well. And as a good American, she of course had a shotgun and was known to be rather prolific with that gun in Lewis's backyard uh, at the Kilns in Oxford. During this time, the Lewis's had some trouble with some local young men, really uh, hooligans, who would trespass on their property and vandalize, steal things, cut down trees, etc. And on one occasion, while Lewis was wheeling Joy around their backyard in her wheelchair, they caught the young men in the act. And Lewis chivalrously put himself in between the young men and Joy behind him sitting in uh, her, her wheelchair, ostensibly to protect her. And I can't repeat here exactly what Joy said, but it was something to the effect of, gosh darn it, Jack, get out of my way, you're blocking my aim. <laughs> One result of this encounter was Lewis's rather curmudgeonly piece, Delinquents in the Snow published in a humor magazine in 1957. For you see, some of the hooligans were later caught by the police and tried in court. In this essay, Lewis complains about how the legal process failed miserably. The presiding judge let them off with a small fine and encouraged them to stop such pranks, as if planned robbery and vandalism are mere pranks. Lewis worried about what such leniency might mean for England's political future. And he took this opportunity to describe how the social contract should work in theory while warning of the consequences if the system broke down in practice. According to the classical political theory of this country, Lewis summarized, we surrendered our right of self-protection to the state on the condition that the state would protect us. A problem arises when the state does not live up to its end of the contract. The state's promise of protection is what morally grounds our obligation to civil obedience, according to Lewis. If this sounds to you a bit like John Locke, then you're right. The government's protection of natural rights, including the right to property, 
is why it is right to pay taxes and wrong to exercise vigilante justice. Yet presently, Lewis argued, the state protects us less because it is unwilling to protect us against criminals at home and manifestly grows less and less able to protect us from foreign enemies. At the same time, it demands from us more and more. We seldom had fewer rights and liberties, nor more burdens, and we get less security in return. While our obligations increase, their moral ground is taken away." End quote. Lewis drew the same conclusion from this state of affairs that Locke did. When the state cannot or will not protect, Lewis warns, nature is come again, and the right of self-protection reverts to the individual. I share this reflection not only as an excuse to tell a story about Joy Lewis and her shotgun, which is one of my favorites, but because it illustrates well the libertarian, leave me alone, literally get off my lawn side of Lewis's personality. In most of his public writings, he was careful not to appear too politically partisan one way or the other. But here at least we see reflected what we also know about him from his private writings and letters, Lewis had a deep distrust of government power, whether it was misused in foreign wars or not used properly enough to keep the domestic peace. And this deep distrust was not merely theoretical, but personal. So that's claim number one, personal connection with Lewis and politics. Claim number two is about Lewis on law as public policy. Lewis's interest in criminal justice extended beyond this particular case with the young hooligans. In May of 1962, Lewis wrote to the poet T.S. Eliot the following, We must have a talk. I wish you'd write an essay on it about punishment. The modern view, by excluding the retributive element and concentrating solely on deterrence and cure, is hideously immoral. It is vile tyranny to submit a man to compulsory cure or sacrifice him to the deterrence of others, unless he deserves it, end quote. Now, one might wonder why Lewis didn't write an essay himself and was asking T.S. Eliot to do this, but he had, in fact, he had written an essay 13 years earlier called The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment, which appeared in an Australian journal in 1949. He sent it to an Australian journal because he could get no hearing for it in England. Nevertheless, the piece did elicit responses from three law professors in Australia, to whom Lewis then responded, and the resulting back and forth was published in Res Judicate, uh, then the law school of the University of Melbourne Law School. You can find Lewis's side of this spirited but well-mannered debate in the God in the Dock collection of Lewis's writings. In his delinquents essay, about the hooligans, Lewis was concerned with criminals being let off too easily, and what that means for the fundamental social contract. Here he is concerned with criminals being treated as less than human. He was worried about developments in European jurisprudence such that deterrence and rehabilitation were becoming the chief goals of the criminal justice system, rather than punishing a wrongdoer simply because he or she has done something to deserve it. It sounds paradoxical, but Lewis believed that when we punish a human being for a wrong, we acknowledge the dignity of that human being and make possible restoration because he should have and could have known better. 
There's nothing wrong with deterring crime or rehabilitating a criminal as a side effect of a prison term, much to commend it, even, Lewis argued. But if those are the chief priorities, then there are serious problems. First, deterrence treats the criminal, who is a human being, an end in herself and not just a means, treats her as a mere means rather than an end in herself. In that case, the more effective the punishing show that the state puts on in deterring the rest of us, the better. The truth of whether the accused is actually guilty or not doesn't need to matter for the end of deterrence alone. Rehabilitation as the chief priority, Lewis warned, or worried, meant that instead of criminals being sentenced by their peers to a certain amount of time as a punishment for what they've done, criminals will instead be treated as patients who are sick. And it will be experts in psychology and penology who will determine whether or if they are ever cured. And only then will they be released. And there's no time limit on when that will happen. And so the freedom of the individual will still be restricted, but there's no limit to that restriction in principle except what the doctors or experts have to say. And who are we ordinary citizens to question the considerable expertise of the experts? Lewis insisted that, the, that only the concept of moral desert can ground legitimate punishment and limit the state's potential abuse of power. We see in this essay how seriously Lewis took human freedom and dignity, and then he applied it even to those people, those who have been convicted of crimes, whose interests and dignity society is quite often likely to ignore or overlook. We also see in the responses from Australian scholars of law that they took Lewis seriously, which is rather remarkable given his day job was a tutor of English literature and scholar of literary criticism. But we also see how important this was to Lewis. As near the end of his life, while convalescing from serious health issues, he tries to get T.S. Eliot to take up the cause. Claim number three. Lewis thought deeply about the welfare state and government's purpose. Thus far, we've discussed Lewis's personal connections to his thinking about politics and a particular policy area he cared a great deal about with criminal justice. Now we move to Lewis's thinking about government at a more theoretical level, and in particular, the welfare state and both the purpose of government and the temptations that come with the use of power. Lewis was deeply concerned about the abuses of an overly ambitious government. After all, human depravity contributes both to the rationale for government in the first place, as well as provides reason to fear its excesses. Lewis wrestled with the tension between his desire for a limited government, which both protects and respects a robust private sphere, and on the other hand, massive social needs that seemingly only government is in place to address. Governments must exist, Lewis acknowledged, but he always insisted that governments exist for the good of individuals and liberty. Consider how Lewis describes the ultimate purpose of government. As long as we are thinking of natural values, Lewis writes, we must say that the sun looks down on nothing half so good as a household laughing together over a meal or two friends talking over a pint of beer, or a man alone reading a book that interests him, that all economies, 
politics, laws, armies, and institutions, save insofar as they prolong and multiply such scenes, are a mere plowing the sand and sowing the ocean, a meaningless vanity and vexation of the spirit. Collective activities are, of course, necessary, but this is to the end to which they are necessary. So Lewis would say what we are doing here these few days, talking about things that matter, enjoying a meal or a pint, that state of Michigan, the federal government, their purpose is to make such things possible. They're here for us. Lewis insisted that the state exists for individuals and households and not the other way around. We see here a break from some of Lewis's favorite teachers, Plato and Aristotle in particular. Plato and Aristotle alike favor, roughly speaking, the collective over the individual, the public or the polis over the private. And Aristotle in particular defines political activity as intrinsically natural as a part of human flourishing. To be human, to be fully human means to engage in politics. Lewis, on the other hand, saw political activity as an instrumental means to genuine aspects of human flourishing, not an intrinsic part of that flourishing itself. Yet, even if only as a means, collective activities are necessary. And Lewis recognized the appeal of technocratic government solutions to address our collective social problems. The temptation to invest government with more power, he noted, always works on a real need that has been neglected. Lewis feared that legitimate human problems that require social coordination and collective activity will give rise to solutions that are far wor worse than the original crisis. Uh, if you are a fan, in this, in this room, you'll have many people who have come to Lewis from different places. Um, how many of you came to Lewis through the Narnia books? It's usually, okay, uh, anyone, Mere Christianity? Okay, those are the two big ones. Uh, the Space or Ransom Trilogy? Okay, some enthusiastic uh, readers. <laughs> if you've read That Hideous Strength, right, which is the third, um, Lewis uh, identifies the NICE, the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, as a, a English or British bureaucracy uh, through which government solutions are going to be far worse than, than the cure. And if you uh, Google British government, there actually is an NICE. It's not the same thing, but it's, someone didn't read their Lewis when they came up with that name. Here's what he writes about this, this tension that we see between needs and then solutions that might outlive the original crisis. He says... We have, on the one hand, a desperate need, hunger, sickness, and the dread of war. We have, on the other, the conception of something that might meet it, omnicompetent global technocracy. Um, Lewis, until the 1956 or 55, 56, 57, Britons were still under rationing for World War II, um, and he would get parcels from Americans sending him stuff all the time, which was great for him, but was, was hardly uh, the case for everyone else. So they had a very tangible sense of, of these problems. Um, and, he, and once he met Joy Gresham, that became much more personal for him because she experienced them in a much more tangible way than he ever had as an Oxford and then Cambridge Don. The temptation to use a real need as a pretext to accumulate and concentrate power is not a new one. You might even think of the last few years, there might have been some examples of that in your own country. But the difference in the mid-20th century, Lewis warned, was that success looked more and more like a plausible possibility. Here's how, here's how he describes this throughout history. 
In the ancient world, individuals have sold themselves as slaves in order to eat. So in society. Here is a witch doctor who can save us from the sorcerers, a warlord who can save us from the barbarians, a church that can save us from hell. Give them what they ask. Give, them, give ourselves to them bound and blindfold, if only they will. Perhaps the terrible bargain will be made again. We cannot blame men for making it. We can hardly wish them not to, yet we can hardly bear that they should. The question about progress has become the question whether we can discover any way of submitting to the worldwide paternalism of a technocracy without losing all personal privacy and independence. Is there any possibility of getting the super welfare state's honey and avoiding the sting? Whether we can do that, whether we can get the state's honey while avoiding the sting, was perhaps the most pressing practical political question for Lewis. And the stakes were, and I would suggest remain, enormous. While acknowledging the great needs for which technology and big government provides answers, Lewis endorsed simple values that he feared were endangered by a know-it-all state. To live one's own life in his own way, to call his house his castle, to enjoy the fruits of his own labor, to educate his children as his conscience directs, to save for their prosperity after his death. That is what liberty meant for Lewis. This was his vision of the good life on an earthly scale. He was skeptical that the modern state can deliver a cure worth the cost. Lewis predicted soberly, that as always, some men will take charge of the destiny of others. They will be simply men, none perfect, some greedy, cruel, and dishonest. He then asked rhetorically about the welfare state, and with an allusion to a thinker whose name we should find familiar, whether we discovered some new reason why, this time, power should not corrupt as it has done before. Lewis quotes Lord Acton two or three times uh, in his writings, particularly on that most famous aphorism. Claim number four, Lewis as natural law apologist. We now move from lowercase law and liberty and politics to law and liberty with uppercase L's. For every human legal system and political regime rests on an underlying view of human nature and morality. And we can't talk about Lewis and law without discussing, discussing natural law. I believe Lewis was a natural law apologist rather than a theorist. We don't go to Lewis for the nooks and crannies of how a natural law system or approach delivers moral conclusions to this or that issue. But Lewis does articulate the inescapable reality of the natural law. Lewis defends natural law in positive terms arguing for the reality of the moral law, and in negative terms, showcasing how stark the alternatives are if we abandon the natural law. He also delivers these apologies, these defenses, in straightforward logical works, like Mere Christianity, which many of you have read, originally uh, radio addresses on the BBC during World War II, so very accessible, written to be understood by everyone as well as more difficult works like The Abolition of Man. Originally three uh, lectures he gave in 1943 and then later turned into a book. He, he illustrates the ideas 
imaginatively in his fiction, most prominently in the Ransom Trilogy, but also in the Chronicles of Narnia and in other writings. On August 6th of 1941, Lewis delivered the first of his celebrated BBC broadcast talks, which later became Mere Christianity. The BBC invited Lewis to give a series of talks explaining the foundational beliefs of Christianity to a war-weary nation, and in his first 15-minute segment, Lewis introduced the British public, or reintroduced, perhaps, the British public to the idea of natural law. If you have read it, you maybe remember how he begins. He starts by directing our attention to how we are constantly appealing to moral standards in how we talk to one another. And that this doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless we believe there is some standard we can appeal to. We're not just saying, I want this. We're saying, you should not have done this, or you know that you should have lived up to the standard, or you treated someone unfairly. And we expect that person to have some recognition of that. This law, Lewis explained, was called the law of nature because people thought that everyone knew it by nature and did not need to be taught it. Moreover, Lewis believed they were right. He writes, if they were not, then all the things we said about the war were nonsense. Remember when he's delivering these lectures. What was the sense in saying the enemy were in the wrong unless right is a real thing which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced? If they had had no notion of what we mean by right, then, though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair. Lewis used the confrontation with the evil of Nazism to highlight the reality of the moral law in a dramatic way. If your moral ideas can be true, he argued, and those of the Nazis less true, there must be something, some real morality for them to be true about. The reality of basic moral principles known on some level to everyone was foundational to Lewis's understanding of the Christian message. The first basic point of his lecture, therefore, was that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. And then he follows that up with a second claim. They do not, in fact, behave in that way. Lewis maintained that these two claims, that there is a natural moral law, we fail to keep it, are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. Moreover, Lewis did not think that a post-Christian society, and he believed England at this time was, in the 1940s, a post-Christian society, could recover truth by first becoming Christian. He opposed, for example, reintroducing Christian curriculum into the public schools, because most of the public school teachers were not Christians. He thought that would make things worse. The truth of the matter, according to Lewis, was the reverse Instead of returning to explicitly Christian ethics, the world must first return to a belief in real objective morality. Only then, he thought, would it be able to return to Christianity. For he says, Christianity is not the promulgation of a moral discovery. It is addressed only to penitents, only to those who admit their disobedience to the known moral law. It offers forgiveness for having broken and supernatural help towards keeping that law and by doing so, reaffirms it. In other words, the way I put my gloss on that is, you have to admit you're sick before you'll see the doctor. 
you have to acknowledge the bad news about your own state of not being able to keep the moral law before you are receptive to the good news of the gospel. The challenge faced by the modern world is that many people deny that morality has any objective basis at all. Morality on various modern accounts can be merely a social construct that exists to serve the interests of its creators. That idea, Lewis wrote, was the disease that will certainly end our species and in my view, damn our souls if it is not crushed. Lewis isn't so much arguing to the conclusion that natural law exists here, that is a tricky proposition for reasons we'll get to shortly, but he's trying to persuade us that we already believe in an objective morality. Our Lewis didn't just defend natural law, he also played offense. He attacked the alternatives, and nowhere more powerfully than in the three lectures that became the abolition of man, which I, I recommend to your reading. Um, it's, uh, depending on how much philosophy you read, it can either be tough sledding, but it, it is rewarding. Um, it's one of the most devastating critiques of saying that the natural law doesn't exist. So it's not trying to prove that it exists, it's taking on the alternatives. Um, and one of the most intriguing features of this little book is how Lewis frames the debate. Many works of natural law theory take a defensive position where the author assumes that natural law is on trial and must be proved valid or reasonable. Lewis does not take this tack. Instead, he turns the tables. Instead of assuming that the Tao, his word here for the natural law, he did not want natural law to be associated just with its Western associations, which is why he chose an Eastern term, because he thinks it's universal throughout all of history and all over the globe. Instead of assuming that the Tao must be established or defended, he proposes to interrogate the alternatives. Critics aim to undermine the old values by teaching students to unmask or see through or check the privilege of old-fashioned sentiments and moral judgments. So much of modern education is tearing down, revealing what, was, what is seen as the, just the raw power behind ideas or moral judgments. But why should we think that we only need to defend our position? Why not ask what motivates the critics of natural law? And what do they propose as a replacement if they succeed in their demolition project? One important clue to understanding what Lewis is up to in The Abolition of Man is found near the conclusion of The Last Battle, which is the last of the Narnian Chronicles. Lewis's apocalyptic conclusion uh, to the Chronicles, in fact. And in the end, in these scenes, the forces of evil have been defeated. Goodness has prevailed. There is still death to go through. Um, but all that remains is to pass into Aslan's country for eternity. So sorry if this is a spoiler for you, but God wins uh, at the end of uh, the last battle. Nevertheless, uh, there is one troubling plot point that remains unresolved. There was a, a group of dwarfs um, who were rather treacherous in the last battle. And they are determined to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. They sit huddled together and miserable in the dark confines of what they take to be a black hole. Queen Lucy tries to persuade the dwarfs to see things as they really are. They're not in a black hole. They're in the midst of the open sky, the green grass, fragrant flowers. Paradise itself awaits them if only they have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lucy tearfully begs Aslan to help the dwarfs and he provides them with a sumptuous feast, but to no avail. 
Not even Aslan will force those who choose blindness to see what truly is. They will not let us help them, Aslan says. You can imagine Liam Neeson saying it in a much more sonorous voice. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. The abolition of man is about that prison. It is about the predicament of those people who do not merely misunderstand or misapply this or that moral teaching, but who reject root and branch the very possibility of moral reality. It is about the predicament of Nihilus, whether explicitly uh, Nihilus who will acknowledge that or functional Nihilus, um, the latter being more prominent but still very much alive. From Lewis's perspective, writing a book of natural law theory, when many people question the very foundations of morality itself, for him at least, would be something of a fool's errand. You don't write chess manuals for those who see games as a complete waste of time. You cannot persuade someone to take their medicine if they don't care about health. You don't review an opera for someone who thinks music is worthless. One first has to write about the intrinsic good of play, the good of health, or the good of art or music. Only if those basic premises are accepted can one have a conversation or rather an argument about games, medicine, and music. So how does one argue about first principles of practical reason or morality, of natural law or the Tao? Lewis believes we cannot argue to them. We argue from them. Here's how he puts it. The primary moral principles on which all others depend, are rationally perceived. We just see that there is no reason why my neighbor's happiness should be sacrificed to my own, as we just see that things which are equal to the same thing are equal to one another. If we cannot prove either axiom, this is not because they are irrational, but because they are self-evident, and all proofs depend on them. Their intrinsic reasonableness shines by its own light. So I am not a math, math professor by any means, but he mentions here the transitive principle, right? If A equals B and B equals C, then A has to equal C. You can't prove that. There's no more fundamental principle underneath that would show it, but you see it, and it has to be true. And it, the claim of natural law theorists and apologists is that there are similar claims when it comes to morality. To not see that reasonableness is to be like the Narnian dwarves, morally blind. So Lewis does not attempt to prove the validity of natural law, a quixotic task, but rather he uses the power of reason to illustrate the alternatives to a belief in foundational moral principles. Lewis hopes to awaken a realization in his readers that they do, after all, believe in the natural law. He does this differently in each of the three chapters of abolition. The first chapter is Men Without Chess, a platonic and Aristotelian picture of the human person, as well as the high stakes for moral education in the political community. In the second chapter, The Way, he dissects any attempt to extract one isolated component of natural law and build a whole ethic based on that one part. And the chapter titled The Abolition of Man does not so much present the positive case for natural law as it does reveal the stark and to a minimally decent moral person horrific alternative.
All right, so a brief looking back at what we've surveyed thus far. We've looked at Lewis's thoughts about law and liberty. We've glanced quickly at his biography and his thinking about criminal justice and the welfare state. We've touched very briefly on Lewis's work defending the natural law and putting its alternatives to the test. I said early on that I would, I would conclude with a brief word about Lewis's understanding of this uh, in relation to purpose and teleology. In Mere Christianity, Lewis uses the analogy of a fleet of ships to illustrate human morality. And morality consists of two aspects of, of this fleet of ships. On the one hand, uh, one wants to make sure that each ship interacts well with the others. So you have signals, you have lights, you know what the other ones are. Um, and so there's this kind of social aspect to morality, interpersonal, um, in terms of how we behave. Um, you don't want to cut them off. You don't want to run into them. You don't want to ram them, right? And you don't want that to happen to you. The other part of morality is to keep each ship individually seaworthy. So the very integrity of your own ship, whatever that looks like, not my wheelhouse, um, but keeping each individual ship seaworthy is the second part of morality. Lewis notes these two parts are interconnected. If you let your individual ship go to pot, you're not going to be able to keep it from running into other ships. You're going to lose control. And if you continue to run into other ships, your individual ship will itself go to pot. It will be damaged. You need those two things together. But then there is a third element that Lewis introduces, and that is the question of where the ships are sailing to. Lewis took seriously law and politics and culture, justice, literature, all sorts of earthly goods. But ultimately, true liberty is not the absence of restraint when it comes to fulfilling one's desires. It is not sailing wherever one likes. Genuine liberty is the freedom to become what we ought, to go where we are called. And Lewis was nothing if not insistent that we are meant for more than just this world. All of those goods that I've described, that Lewis describes, he would say, are good things. But they're second things. They're important, but they're not the first thing. If you're familiar with the journal First Things, it's inspired in part by this distinction. Ultimately, one must understand Lewis within the context of his Christian commitments. That's where he is at. It's not exclusive to that, but to understand him, he needs to be within that context. The practical problems of faith and law and political liberty are important. And Lewis offers some resources with which to deal with those problems. Understanding natural law and objective morality is crucial. And Lewis's thought on this matter can be instructive. Society's resistance to the moral law and at times, rationality itself is discouraging, sometimes very discouraging. And Lewis's examples of logical arguments and fictional apologetics should give us some hope that one can respond well. It should inspire us to some extent. Not that we, will, not that we need another C.S. Lewis, but we need more who did the sort of things that he, that he did. But Lewis, the mere Christian, would have us remember that the success of Christian witness depends not only or even primarily upon these things, it depends on the people of God living out their faith with integrity and authenticity and what God can do with that. We will not achieve the perfect answer, and though this earthly life is important, 
it takes place in the Shadowlands and does not compare with the reality of heaven. The answers Lewis did leave behind about law and liberty and politics, positive and negative arguments for the moral law, the rational Christian apologetic and the imaginative fiction should inspire those of us who share his vision to continue in his tradition. As Lewis observed, the great heroes of the faith all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Thank you. All right, so I went that one a little quicker than I expected. We have time for Q&A, and I do see a hand in the back. So for better or for worse, it'll be, it'll be recorded for posterity. You covered quite a bit of the uh, Lewis corpus, um, and you started to seem to go to the place I'm thinking at the very end of your talk. So I'm wondering if you can extend your talk just a couple minutes on the screw tape letters, which deal with the question of hell, and the, I'm sorry, the great divorce, which deals with hell, and screw tape letters that deals with temptation, where those fit in kind of a natural law approach. Um, I can do the screw tape letters more easily, and then maybe the other part of my brain will come up with something by the time I'm done for the great divorce. Uh, Lewis did strongly believe in, in a real hell. Um, he opens up the screw tape letters. For those of you who have not, are not familiar with that work, it's, it's what made him famous in the U.S. It got him on the cover of Time magazine. It's, if, you, if you don't like to read so much, John Cleese from Monty Python does an audio recording, which is brilliant. And I want to say Andy Serkis has done one as well, an uh, actor who portrayed Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Um, and it's a series of letters from a senior demon ref, uh, to a junior demon whose job is to tempt a human being and get that person into hell. Um, and, uh, and so when Lewis writes hell, he capitalizes the H because he believes it's real. He opens that up by saying, if you might not believe in devils at all, or you might believe in them too much. Either way is a problem. There he's an Aristotelian. There's a nice, healthy mean in between. Um, and uh, he does, in the screw tape letters, he'll, he will address, he will encourage um, Wormwood to help the, help the uh, patient associate his own faith with his political views and then start to see people who disagree with his politics as outside that faith. Okay? Something I think we struggle with a little bit in the last couple of years. He also, Lewis also, 20 years after the Screwtape letters, he brings Screwtape out of retirement in an essay that he published in the Saturday Evening Post, a quintessential American magazine called Screwtape Proposes a Toast. And that's explicitly about democracy and American education. And in that um, address, Lewis has Screwtape distinguished between democracy as a system of government, which is good, and Lewis endorses it, and democracy as an ethos, which is animated by the idea that I'm just as good as you. And he, and he knows no one who actually believes that you're, you're equal to someone else ever says that to somebody else. Right? You're trying to claim it. And um, it's actually, uh, if any of you attended the, the Tocqueville session, um, it's, a, it's a Tocquevillian claim about um, democracy as a system of government. It can be, the, you know, as Churchill said, it's, uh, the worst, it's bad, but it's better than all the other ones that are worse. Um, but it's, it can work, and Lewis endorses it because he believes in the fall. But democracy as a cultural ethos, he said, was death. Um, so uh, the other thing I would say, I would introduce, I would mention a sermon he gave called The Weight of Glory. 
in which he talks about how we see how we see each other should always be influenced by the truth. Again, speaking within his Christian faith, that all of us are destined at one point to either be a creature so beautiful that if we saw it now, we'd be tempted to bow down and worship it in our glorified bodies, or a, if someone's in hell, something so horrific that we'd only meet it in our worst nightmares, and that all of our interactions with each other should be tempered by that knowledge that we are helping each other to one or two of those places. So he will. He, he was a, he, at one point. Winston Churchill um, wanted to give him a uh, the commander of the British Empire designation. He turned it down because he didn't want to be, people to be able to say, "Oh, you're just a conservative politically," even though he leaned libertarian. Um, so in one sense, he could. He very much could be apolitical. If you read *Mere Christianity*, he says the Christian society would have some elements the left would like, and they'd have some elements the right would like. Um, but he, his politics was very much infused by this theological belief that this time is important, but it's temporary, and that our eternal destiny, and that, I guess that's where the great divorce comes in, so this is actually gonna work. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> one of the ideas, in the, if you haven't read the great divorce, uh, it is Lewis imagining himself or a version of himself in hell, and there's a bus that goes up to heaven, right? And so he's waiting in line with these other people in hell, and they get to go up to heaven, um, and this also, I think, this actually has been performed in a play. Um, you can see the play. When they get to heaven, they are met by someone they knew on earth, um, who is going to attempt to have them stay in heaven. And Lewis then recounts the different conversations between uh, the people who are coming from hell and the people in heaven who they know. And almost, I think with maybe one exception, everyone chooses to get back on the bus, go back down to hell. Um, but the point that might hit on what you're saying is Lewis thinks that, uh, that heaven is so real that it will work its way backwards such that if we end up in heaven, all of our time here on earth will be sucked into that heaven looking backwards, and the corollary is true as well, which is why, we can, why he would t- you could talk about a living hell um, if, you are, if that's going to be your, your destiny. All right, is that enough of a filibuster answer? Does that work? Okay. Um, I see a hand here and then a hand about fifth or sixth row back. probably take longer to bring the microphone to me than to ask my question. This is a very quick one. Uh, in, po- in point three, you, uh, you, you, you shared several quotes where uh, Lewis talks about global technocracy. Mm-hmm. What work was that from? I would have to look at my footnotes. I have my card. Okay. Um, Lewis has, uh, there's a few different places. You, have, you can now get three volumes of his letters. I suggest a library because they're, they're now hard to find and super expensive, but they're all indexed. And so you can find, um, he, he writes some letters to people in response. Lewis responded to every letter he got. Um, and sometimes his brother would help him write them. Um, and it actually took a ton of time, but he would respond to letters and some of them were about politics. Um, there are some more politically themed essays in the God in the Dock, it's one collection, and then um, Present Concerns has an essay of his on equality, has an essay of his on uh, democratic education, um, on pacifism, that might be in God in the Dock. Um, so th- th- the specific footnotes, if you, if you email me, I'm um, at calvin.edu, um, I'd be happy to, to send them to you. Uh, I don't have it right, yeah, right here. Yeah, thank you for your talk, it was, uh, it was great. Uh, you mentioned that C.S. Lewis may have departed in some ways from Plato or Aristotle. Uh, did you mean that very sharply and strongly, or is it more a passing 
it seems that they have parted ways, but perhaps they can be reconciled. Uh, so if you, if you have read the, the, the last battle, you know, the professor says, good heavens, what are they? it's all in Plato, it's all in Plato, what are they teaching them in the schools? So he's very much um, a Platonist in many ways. Um, and, and he's also very much an Aristotelian. If you do read Abolition of Man, he's, he's quoting Aristotle in terms of how he thinks we learn and, and how we acquire virtues. Um, it's an Aristotelian, Aristotelian vision. Where he departs, and, do, and this I do mean sharply, given his um, one big divide between any Orthodox Christian and Plato and Aristotle is original sin. Um, and that's why he, he quotes Lord Acton a couple times. So insofar as both Plato and Aristotle seem to think, and I think they think this, that uh, it is the, that Polis's function to make us good, right? This is why Plato's Republic, you know, it's about education and books two and three are about getting rid of the bad stories and getting good stories and the bad Bible stories or bad religious stories and good stories. Um, and and uh, whereas Lewis thinks we were crooked timber to begin with, and the more power you invest a government with, the, the more damage they can do. So on that note, on whether, he, he still believed we can become more virtuous than we are, but his, uh, he did not think the government was going to do a very good job of that. So on that point, there's a, there's a divergence. On many other things, there's strong um, agreement. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm trying to formulate the question, the question here. Um, are you familiar with Frederick Frederic Bastia's The Law? Uh, and okay, so I'm gonna kind if of familiar is if it's a binary thing, then okay. you know if it's a continuum. Uh, you're more familiar than me, but by, by your, the fact uh, that you're asking the question. So, so go he, ahead. So he briefly talks about um, briefly. He writes extensively about uh, how he believes the law should only be used in negative fashion, so only to protect. Uh, I believe it's life, liberty, and life, liberty, property, and so on, and faculties, and so. Where, where do you think he goes wrong? Because I think C.S. Lewis has more of a, uh, he imagines the, the government to be able to play more positive uh, role in the lives. So what would be his natural law kind of um, reply to that? Um, so I, I think Lewis's temperament would be pretty close to that, right? I think that's his, what he wants to, where he, where he changed his mind a little bit about, the reason that he talks about the, the, the lure of the welfare state is he became more acquainted with what it would be like to be in severe need. So Lewis's life, I mean, he's, he was an Oxford Don and a Cambridge Don. I, had the, I got the privilege uh, a couple of years ago to go and, and visit Oxford and, and, and see where he lived. And, I got the, and my host was great. He took me through a day in the life of what it would have been like. And frankly, it's pretty cushy, okay? Um, and when Lewis met Joy David and Gresham, she had had an abusive husband. She had two small boys. She was pretty much on her own. And, and, was, um, and, and had no money for medical. Basically, he, he became much more aware of what it would be like to be in those circumstances. Um, and he eventually marries her to help keep her in the country, right? It's a, bit of, it's a bit scandalous. He then later realizes he's in love with her, and they get married in the real way and, and have a short but quite passionate marriage in there. You know, she's in her 40s, and he's uh, in his late 50s. He writes a letter to an American, and I forget her name, but I think she lives in Florida, and he says, for all the hard things I've said about our National Health Service, because he's been quite critical, if you have nothing, then that's better than nothing. And so you almost see there, this is not, you know, you could see a faint echo of subsidiarity there, right? 
which I'm not saying Lewis's thing had that in mind. I don't think he was familiar with it. But to the idea that the best thing would be, obviously, for someone's family to be able to take care of them if they fall into hard times. And then you might think the local church, and then you might think the local government. But the end, as much as we might think the federal government or Britain national government is not going to do a great job with health care, if it's that or someone just dying, he says, we need that. So I think that's, that's going to be part of what his response would be. He, but he feels it's a tension for him because um, he doesn't trust government. Uh, there are other natural law folks who can make a stronger argument for the government being positively involved um, in making a life better for people rather than just restricting the negative liberty thing. Um, that might be a, another topic. Yeah. Oh, could you briefly expound on Because he believes that the second you go into anything like helping people, he says when it's used for anything like philanthropy, it essentially negates justice and liberty. Yeah, I guess one, I mean, one response would be that if the state is seen as this external thing out there doing stuff to us, then that makes a lot of sense. If the state is, is basically our hired public servants, and, and notice the smaller the community gets, the more that feels true. Um, I feel like if, if, if Grand Rapids is something, I can have much more of a sense that that's somehow my people or here in the city, as opposed to uh, nameless, faceless DC bureaucrats doing something. If your conception of politics is more like the polis, where the government is, for the, Lewis in this sense is like the Greeks. For the Greeks, they did not have this compartmentalization that we do where we have, well, here's the state, and here's school, and here's family, and here's church, and we kind of, and here's work, right? We kind of compartmentalize all those things. For them, the polis was much more um, one thing. And so if your sense of a small town, you know, the small town gets together and the town council votes, it kind of feels like we're doing this, right? So we're, we're building this little one-room schoolhouse. We're doing that. And so I think, I don't, I don't know Bastiat well enough. My sense is he's critiquing the, the big welfare states. Is that, okay. Uh, thank you, uh, doctor. I appreciated that presentation. Uh, when you were referring to abolition of man, the critique, uh, Lewis, of the state of education in uh, England of his day, uh, are, could you tease out some similarities, perhaps with the kidnapping by ideological forces of the academy today? Are there similarities there? Could you tease those out a little bit? Um, Lewis was more, so in that hideous strength, he he critiques the university, particularly in the beginning. Um, but he's more making, he's more pointing out just the ridiculousness of faculty meetings and, and power plays. Lewis, when he turns his eyes towards education, is more thinking about elementary and middle school level. Um, so I think his thought would be more applicable to the everybody gets a trophy sort of thing than it is to the, um, the wokeness or the, some of the ideological crazes we see in higher education. Um, I don't think those had, had uh, while the, probably the antecedents to that, those views had, had already been planted, the seeds had already been planted, I don't think you had the full flowering of that. Um, now, Lewis died, you know, he dies uh, on the, November 22nd, 1963, same day as JFK and Aldous Huxley. Had he lived another 10 years, then he would have seen, you know, what, what, what was happening in the 60s and maybe would have had some comments on that. So, but in, um, in his essay on democratic education in the first book of Abolition of Man, he is focusing much more on um, a pedagogy that tries to teach students um, that, that, that their statements are mere expressions of their inward feelings and don't connect to realities outside. 
Um, and he, he thinks that's just disastrous. So that's where he turns his fire. Um, I think you probably, with some other things, you could probably make some connections to higher ed at now, but I think it'd be more the early stages. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so the, I want to tag on to the abolition of man discussion. Um, first of all, to say, you know, we had some sci-fi trilogy people here, and I really disliked the third one, that hideous strength, until I had read The Abolition of Man. You know, mm-hmm. after I read The Abolition of Man, that one made a lot more sense to me. Um, but on the lines of The Abolition of Man, you said uh, that he did not want to uh, pursue a re-Christianizing of the education system uh, in England, right? And that, right. Makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, of course, abolition of man is his extreme dissatisfaction with what he sees as kind of a new secular approach, right? Uh, cynical about truth. Um, so do you think that for him, uh, the natural law represents this uh, uh, not explicitly Christian, but a, but a good way to, to address the moral problem without, without going to revelation? Is that kind of the way he's thinking about that? I don't know that he would, um, I don't think it's an either or, because he clearly will appeal to, to Revelation and his other works, and he's making the case for a supernatural Christianity, and he'll, he'll make that case rationally in, in a book on miracles, and he'll make it uh, imaginatively in his other imaginative work. Um, so some, we've already talked about the Screwtape Letters a little bit. In the first Screwtape Letter, uh, Screwtape chides Wormwood for trying to argue his patient away from Christianity. And, and Screwtape says, you know, a few generations ago, humans believed in the connection between something that was logically concluded and their actual behavior, such that if they changed their mind, they would change their behavior. And he says, well, they don't do that anymore. So don't waste your time on, on argument. And besides, um, the enemy, which was Screwtape's name for God, and Screwtape always capitalizes it, the enemy is a God of truth. And so once you get, a, once you get even an atheist arguing about what's true, then you're on the enemy's ground. Um, so Lewis, even in the early 40s, was dis- not despairing entirely, but skeptical about the power of reason. He's a natural law guy, but he's also, notice the dwarfs don't get into heaven in the last battle, right? They, they reject reason. And in other, other things he writes, um, reason is, is limited. Um, so by the end of his life, uh, Lewis is doing more, he's, he's writing a book on prayer, letters to Malcolm. He is doing, he does, he is not, he does not deny the truth of his rational beliefs, but he is more skeptical but that, that that is the route to changing culture or, or winning hearts and minds. He writes about, um, he has an essay about the Chronicles, and he'll describe his writing process. He, 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 was, he, he saw in his head uh, a young girl in a snowy forest, and a fawn kind of prances by with parcels. Right, that's, and then he writes the story to make, make sense of that. Um, he describes his, his writing as um, th- that he didn't want writing to come across as telling us, here's what you need to do to be faithful, because that awakens these watchful dragons. Because as soon as we're told you need to do something, our initial human response is to, nah, right? And so he describes his fiction as trying to sneak past watchful dragons. And occasionally, if you, so in grad school, I had a, a brilliant colleague um, who's absolute atheist, but his, he read a lot when he was a kid, he read the Chronicles and loved it, and then realized, Oh, that's, that's Jesus, isn't it? Right. Um, and it doesn't mean it didn't mean it worked, but it got past those watchful dragons, right, and, and had an influence. So, 
Oh, we have a hand right over here. Um, you mentioned his relationship with um, T.S. Eliot, yeah. uh, and of course Eliot has a you know, long-standing connection to the Christian humanist tradition. Um, how much of that did Lewis read? I know Tolkien read quite a bit of Christopher Dawson, cites it in his essay on fairy tales, and um, also um, you know, some of the other Catholic um, Christian humanists. How much of that would Lewis have been familiar with? Uh, so uh, my most honest, quick answer is I'm not entirely sure, but I'll, I'll try and speculate a little bit anyway. Lewis, um, his first attempt at doing anything after he got after he was finished with school was to try to be a poet. And he has two books of poetry um, while he's an atheist. And in those, uh, in that poetry, he's quite angry with God. Um, if you if you want to read more about this aspect, you can read Michael Ward, Planet War, Planet Narnia. Michael Ward is a, uh, a Catholic priest, a fellow at Blackfriars in Oxford, and also has a position at Houston Baptist University. And he's on the Mount Rushmore of Lewis scholars. Um, so in terms, his his first he has a line where he actually critiques T. S. Eliot for his line about um, seeing a body, and I'm, you, you can you can say it. It's it's he compares something to seeing a body anesthetized on the on the table, and Lewis is like. I have no idea what this means. He did not care for that kind of poetry. Later, however, they worked together, I think, on the authorized version of, of, uh, of, of the Bible and did some translation or some, some English writing things. So, you know, Lewis that we haven't talked about is, is Lewis as a, as, a, um, as a scholar, he's quite prolific and quite respected. Um, Cambridge steals him from Oxford, which doesn't happen unless you're pretty good. Um, so I think he would have been familiar with Eliot and they became somewhat friends and that's why he feels, feel like he can write that uh, letter to him. But at least early on, um, he wasn't, I don't think it was his, his style of poetry. And it was there working together, I think, on one of the authorized versions of, of the Bible where uh, some of that, um, they, they got along better. Yeah. Right. I think there's a hand in the back left there. So between the problem of pain and a grief observed, it seems like Lewis's understanding of suffering changes pretty significantly, mm -hmm. uh, in large part due to joy, I think. Uh, do you think that had any effect on his understanding of politics? Uh, so one of Lewis's rational works is The Problem of Pain. If you do watch the movie Shadowlands, they take this very dynamic as part of the plot, which is in The Problem of Pain, He's saying that pain is God's megaphone to wake us up to what we need to know, right? Um, and, and he would later say that uh, he didn't know what he was talking about because he hadn't really been through it. Now, he had been through his mother dying of cancer when he was a kid. So he was not, uh, and, and he served in World War I and got, had friends get killed and he was wounded himself. So he's not been living in this ivory tower the whole time. But the death of joy just wrecked him, right? Um, and if you read A Grief Observed, he originally wrote that under a pseudonym, N.W. Clerk. Um, and people kept giving it to him. So he eventually just said, okay, I wrote it. Stop giving me the book that I wrote about my own grief. Um, and so he, he's there. He, he's, it's like he acknowledges the rational part can still have worth, but it really didn't speak to the human aspect of going through that. Does that affect his politics? Okay, I filibustered enough to try and give myself something, uh, time to think of something to say. Um, I don't know. The only thing I'd speculate is, is uh, that, that the earlier Lewis is a little bit more confident and polemical and quite razor sharp in some of the things he writes. And the later Lewis is a little more circumspect, still holds his convictions and his positions, but, but perhaps with a little bit more um, 
charity is a little too strong, but a little more understanding of why someone would think differently. And I think that happens with those two books without uh, grief. So it could be that's the case about politics as well. That's about the best I can do. I think it's a good question. Hi, so I know you talked a little bit about Lewis's understanding of democracy and obviously how it's both a system of government but also an ethos. But I'm curious if uh, Lewis had any particular thoughts, obviously because he lived in a, a monarchy and a parliamentary system, and how he related to that during his time living in England for the majority of his life, obviously. Yeah. So um, there's two essays that, that really speak to that. Um, one is called Equality. And the other one is called Democratic Education. I've mentioned them a little bit. Um, the equality essay, he begins by saying, I am a Democrat because I believe in the fall. Um, most people are Democrats because they believe human beings are good, and the more of them you get involved, the better the results. He says, that's silly. As I know, I don't deserve to rule as much of a hen roost, let alone a nation. Um, and he goes on to, to say that equality is not a good in and of itself. It's not intrinsic. Um, it, is, it is a result of the fall. So it's like medicine or clothing. Uh, we need it because we're broken, or we need it beca not because it's good in itself. Um, nevertheless, he does defend democracy procedurally. And in the end of that essay, it's, it's two pages, really short, but it's really chock full. He says, I'm so glad we still have our ceremonial monarchy. Okay? Why? Because it gives us something to honor greater than ourselves, even if we, and all the better because we know that the queen doesn't really have power. Um, and then he, he has a little bit of a slight here on Americans. He says, if you don't have that, then you're probably going to worship gangsters or movie stars or something like that. In other words, he says, we are worshiping creatures, right, to some extent. We are going to, we are going to admire something. And a, even for all the problems we might associate with the British monarchy, if we're going to have to be, admire something compared to the alternatives, that one's pretty good. Um, so so that, in terms of his own, he, he saw himself as a, um, you know, a loyal uh, subject to the queen. Um, but also was glad that, that Britain was, was democratic, uh, even though he sometimes despaired of, of politics. So, yeah, good question. You're all thinking about your own liberty from this room at this point, perhaps. But. Oh, there's someone behind you, too, so either way. I just want to go back to the screw tape letters for a moment. Um, Thinking of the letter in which Screwtape warns, warns Wormwood to keep his attention focused, or keep his patience, patience attention focused on the outermost circles of influence. So, uh, you know, focus on world affairs, national politics, uh, and, and keep one's attention away from those closest, uh, which is a way to ensure that one can be beastly to one's own family uh, while, okay. while yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. And and I wonder if that I wonder if that principle and this is my question, do you think that principle explains some of Lewis's uh, discreetness in being a political writer? Uh, you've, I think you've convinced me that he's not apolitical, uh, that the, the conventional wisdom is wrong. He he is political, but it's discreetly political. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if if that's a kind of model for, uh, or a, a caution for all of us who might want to devote more energy to the political and, and forget our more, more local responsibilities. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Um, uh, so I think you're referring to the dynamic where effectively he says something like, have your patient um, focus all of his love of humanity on people who will never actually meet, 
right? The cause that you'll never, that you, you know, that you'll think I'm rooting for the Ukrainians, but I'm not going to do with it. Whereas I'm going to hate my neighbor next to me right. who's annoying, right? right? Whereas the you better to have the wrong view about Ukraine. You should have the right view about Ukraine, but have the wrong view about Ukraine and, and treat your neighbor well than, than the reverse. Um, so that I so help me pick up the thread from there. So would that then be a reason why Lewis wasn't more politically active? Yeah. So there's a yeah there's a lot here. Um, my book is not out there. I co-authored a book on Lewis and natural law, but you can find it if you Google it. Um, I, either I didn't press the right button to register it or whatever. But there is a, we make the, the, the case stronger that Lewis is political if you understand politics as what the good life looks like and how we try and achieve it, which is the more ancient, expansive view of what politics is as opposed to just bureaucratic tr voting trades and, and bicameral legislation. Those things are important too, but Lewis in the broader sense is more public. But he really did disdain the everyday legislative stuff. He didn't like that. Um, he, he wrote an, an essay called an, um, Meditation on the Third Commandment um, about Christian parties and why he thought they were a really bad idea. Um, he thought Christian, he, he, did, he did think Christian statesmen and, and stateswomen should be engaged in politics. He did not think the church should be proposing solutions to politics. So he said it's silly for bishops to be thinking about, to come up with proposals for minimum wage. That's not, that's not their job. They need to stay in their lane. They've got a high enough calling, right? But he did think Christian politicians and statesmen and women should do it. Um, and he proposed in that essay for the ordinary Christian citizen um, not to sell oneself to a party, but to, to form, and it's really quite, to form a, almost a Christian union that would say, if we would come up with 10 things, and if you go against us on this, we will not vote for you. So rather than being a positive, we're going to try and take the reins through a Christian party, make the parties come to you, and if they want this block of votes, you're not going to be engaging in A, B, C, or D. That was a, uh, one, one practical solution he had, which he, it's kind of a throwaway line. He had, he had based it off of something. He just read something by Jacques Maritain, um, and so there's a nice Catholic-Anglican uh, connection there. Um, but he does say he would, he, would in, he would favor making this enforceable by church discipline, which is pretty radical for Lewis because he's a leave-me-alone guy. So meditation on the third commandment would be um, an essay to look up on that. Uh, to follow up on the Plato, Aristotle, Lewis, so how about Locke? You said that he proposed a system that was reminiscent of Locke. How identical is what Lewis is proposing or accepting like Locke? Because Locke also does not believe in original sin, like Plato and Aristotle. Well, this is going to get us into the weeds. Locke opens up the reasonable Christianity by rejecting the Socinians, who absolutely reject natural law, but he also doesn't go as far as the Calvinists that he was raised with. Um, but he still talks about depravity. So he's not where Aristotle and Plato are at, but he's also not where, like, my school, Calvin, is at. Um, he, Lewis is an admirer of Locke, but he's not doing, like, a lot of Lockean thinking. So in that essay, a couple of other places, he, will, he, he seems to believe in the social contract, right? And in his private letters, he'll say Locke is one of our most sensible thinkers. He, he refers to him um, in abolition, actually. Locke gets a footnote. Um, so in some ways, uh, Locke and Lewis are similar insofar as the social contract idea um, and rejecting the idea that the state is going to make us virtuous. Um, and if you, not to be obnoxious, and every, but I have a chapter on that in the, in the book, which I should say I co-authored, it's not just mine. But, the, but we split up some of the chapters and that Locke one's mine. So if you want more on that, you can, you can check out that chapter in that book. Uh, C.S. Lewis on politics and the natural law. So 2016 is uh, Cambridge.
As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.